Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports professor Rick Haro inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. Really, really busy week. World Series over. Heading over to the World Cup. I'll do these segments and podcasts from there and give you my perceptions. But also, this has been a time where all of the sports coming together. And it's not really $1.3 trillion. Some suggest it's now $2 trillion because of all the gambling influences. But let's get right to it. Deal-making issues, three to one. Three. Professional Fighters League launches a 24-7 ad-supported streaming TV channel in partnership with Sumo Local Now Sports TV, Sports Tribal. The distribution channel features video from the MMA League event library, PFL Vault episode, archived shows, behind-the-scenes footage, weigh-ins, and news conferences. Already live on Local Now and Zumo, the streams are scheduled to launch on Sports TV and Europe-based Sports Tribal sometime ahead of the PFL World Championship on November 25. Throughout November, PFL Fast Channel will show title fights and features former PFL champions. Smart Cage, the league raised up to $175 million in funding. This is their proprietary data and analytics platform that enables real-time wagers and next-gen stats. PFL had previously launched its own streaming service through the League's app that offered similar behind-the-scenes footage, classic fights, and fighter interviews. All sports seem to be taking this model. Two. NASCAR put together one hell of a season, bounce-back year in TV viewership, up 4% even before the Phoenix race. Joey Logano, obviously the star of the show, NASCAR's TV performance didn't slow down this season. NBC's coverage of the Cup Series title begins at 3. Broadcast team includes Dale Jarrett, Kyle Petty, Brad Doherty, and others competing head-to-head on October 23's coverage with NASCAR's Homestead race Average 2.31 million viewers compared to 1.1 million for the Formula One U.S. Grand Prix the week before. So it's really heading in the right direction. One. Formula One renewed their partnership with Amazon Web Services to continue focusing on growing fan experience through machine learning, AI, and cloud technologies. New gaming experiences for everyone, including AWS working with Formula One since 2018, but now been named a global partner of the league. F1 leveraged machine learning to launch 20 new stats since 2018. The renewed partnership also focused increase on offering Formula One-themed AWS Deep Racer and game day programs as part of its online STEM learning to develop ML and AI skills. Every sport seems to be following a significant template. Merchandising, artificial intelligence, obviously streaming, memorabilia, memorabilia, memorabilia. 
And that's one of the things that we're talking about today from a uh, philosophy perspective with one of our key industry leaders, Brandon Steiner. He was a founder and chairman of Steiner Sports Marketing Memorabilia, at the time the largest company of its kind in America. He's considered the sports marketing guru, a permanent fixture in the media, a regular on ESPN New York Radio 28.7, hook up with Brandon Snyder, Steiner on the Yes Network, CNN, MSNBC, and others. And what about his newspaper articles, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc.? The author of the business playbook, Leadership Lessons in the World of Sports. And you got to have balls. How a kid from Brooklyn started from scratch, bought Yankee Stadium, and created a sports empire. Brandon lives in Scarsdale, and he is clearly a man of many talents, not the least of which contributor to the Sport Business Handbook, Insights from 100-plus Leaders Who Shaped 50 Years of the Industry, a book that I know a little about as the managing editor. Here's Brandon Steiner. So let's cut to some of the chase. So, you know, 64 years ago, whatever it is, you're celebrating your first birthday, you're sitting around the table and you're thinking about a life changing career in memorabilia when you're at Flatbush there. It doesn't happen that way. But when did you first get the idea that this would be your life work? It's funny. I didn't want to do the collectible thing. I was marketing athletes, which I still do. I mean, I still market a lot of players and you know get yeah. them for appearances and help you know companies grow. But I didn't want to do the collectibles. But it was being done so poorly, and there was so much fake stuff out there. It was driving me crazy. And you know, I'm a former hard rock guy. I opened up the first hard rock in yeah. New York on 57th Street. And and when I was running that place at night, I was like, wow, this would be cool, but with sports. So uh, that's kind of how it all kicked in as far as me understanding the power of the memorabilia and seeing how all this game used and all these really cool artifacts from celebrities move people because we had all this rock and roll memorabilia. up. So the sports bar thing, uh, I eventually opened up one of the first sports bars back in 1984 with one of the limited partners of the Yankees, Billy Rose. And then we uh, did this whole memorabilia thing and so when I started Steiner, though, I was just doing marketing and helping people do appearances and then eventually said, wait a minute, I think I need to add on, you know, some autograph stuff to these appearances. So it was really a B2B player, Rick. It wasn't, yeah. I wasn't thinking about building a brand that was going to be this whole ordeal. But then, I don't know, my creative juices started rolling. I started creating all these things, selling bricks, $50 million of dirt, creating all these special products, projects, team signings. I probably produced well over 30, 35 million autographs and then just hundreds of thousands of different unique products. My mind was just just tripping out and I was having a lot of fun. And, and particularly because fans, you know, I was doing things that fans really wanted when they went to a ball game. Like, how many times have you gone to a game with your kid? You'd love to get second base and give it yeah. to your kid. Right. You know, or, or, or just grab maybe the player's cleats and give it to your kid. So and that, while you're I'm at it, acting on the ten-year-old, you know. And while you're at it, let's get Ricky Anderson to sign it for exactly. us, right? Yeah, yeah, I got it. But the interesting thing is, you define something that had no previous ROI. You know, you go in everybody's closets and they have trading cards and it's all musty stuff and the flies fly out. But you put a number and you put a business to it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when you're at Syracuse, Syracuse, and you're in sports in Syracuse, it's a broadcasting school. Look at all the guys who cut their teeth gals too in broadcasting and you're thinking yeah i want to be in sports but i want to do something different 
Well, you know, it's funny. I was Syracuse. I just wanted to be in the restaurant business, and my mother won't let me transfer over to Cornell. It's like, ah! <laughs> but funny. my roommate was the running back, you know, with Joe Morris. Yeah. Roommate. And that's why I learned a little bit about the sports business and what a professional athlete, a Division One athlete, was going through, which was a tremendous learning experience that I really, at that time, didn't know the dividends that that was going to pay. I always tell people, you don't really ever know, you know, what you're doing and the kind of impact it's going to have later on. But generally, most things that you do, somehow they come around they, and they pay dividends. And those learning experiences always pay off. And that was true for me at Syracuse. You know, to be able to go to a school like that, I've never really been to a sports school. My high school had no sports. And to really learn how the business of sports kind of worked kind of got me going. But remember, in 1981, there really was no sports business. It wasn't a lot no. of sports business going right. on. So, um, but, you know, who came to speak at Syracuse was George Steinbrenner. And uh, I'm in the first row. And, you know, and I developed a relationship with George later on. But this is the first time I've ever seen George up close. I'm in the first row. I got my Yankee hat on. And he's just really pounding that this whole sports thing is a business. Right. And the way I run this stadium is like a business. And I, and he just went on and on and on. So it kind of got me thinking. It was the first time I had really heard that, that this whole sports thing is a business. Now I have to tell people, you know, this business thing is a sport. Yeah, I got to <laughs> remind people this is a sport. Don't forget, because it's gone so much to the other side. Um, but that's all another story. Well, but the one thing we have in common and, you know, the labor of love writing the book and 50 years ago when the only business that we had was to try to find some business law person and apply some sports facts to it. And somebody who wrote a, a classmate of mine, Bob Ruxin, said the only uh, reason you qualify as an agent is you have some poor schmuck who called you an agent. And so in 1987, the bio says, that you bamboozled somebody out of eight grand to start Signer Associates. No, it didn't say bamboozled. So how did how did that all start? Uh, I wish I had the eight grand. <laughs> it was four grand. Oh, and what sorry. happened is I, I was going to be part of this little sports. This agent was going to hire me to market his players. Yes. And when I got to his office, he told me he couldn't hire me. So I went home and I told my wife, I said, I think I got to take $4,000 out of the bank. And I bought a Mac Plus, a printer, and had a couple hundred dollars to spare. And the guy gave me a small little office in his office to use. And I was just marketing players. I was doing golf events, charity events. I was opening up fan mail, Rick. That was really my end. <laughs> I'd go to the players and say, what are you doing yeah. with all your fan mail? They felt right. guilty about throwing it out. And I yeah. always say, you know, value. Value is what you could do that someone else can't do themselves. I found something I could value myself. I said, open up your mail. I'll find if there's some sick kids. If there's some business opportunities, and then I was I was doing Lawrence Taylor, Carl Banks, yeah. a whole bunch of players, and that got me closer to them. And then I'd find different opportunities in the mail, and I'd try to book them. You you didn't have to give equity to that guy that gave you that office space, did you? It was four hundred dollars a month. <laughs> All right, I'm well, still waiting for him to come back to me to say when I'm going to be part of the group. Yeah, so well, listen, this is going to be nationally circulated, so don't answer the phone in the next couple of weeks <laughs> or months anyway. I think so, it was a big mistake. He, he kind of missed out on some talent, I'd like to think. But I love when people blow me off and throw me to the side because, you know, there's nothing like being the underdog. It just fires me up. Well, we've had conversations, full disclosure, we actually shared a parent company yes. uh, that bought my company, bought your company. And we can talk about that briefly, obviously. But the whole idea of uh, monetizing aspects of the sports business that nobody knew before, 
was really kind of an interesting piece. You defined it and then defined it in a way where a large holding company would invest in that side of the business. So, you know, kudos to you. But when did you first realize after 87, when you were up and going, that you were onto something really, 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 really big? Well, there's a couple of moments of time. I mean, I've had my Jerry Maguire moments. I mean, you know, going out of business several times. But I think it was, you know, when you think about it, I, I just was always trying to maintain an 11-year-old mindset. And I was doing these appearances. And when I, when I would bring a really cool photo or some helmets or some baseballs to sign, I saw the people go much more crazy about this item that the player would sign than they were on the athlete that they were meeting or the athlete doing a speech. So I knew there was something there. And I knew there was an important aspect of this whole uh, athlete consumer, athlete, corporate person than just them meeting them. And and so I was always a collector, always saved my ticket stubs, always saved all my old programs, all that stuff. So, you know, I really just started putting together collectible lines of products to support my marketing stuff I would do with a business. They go to a trade show, we give away signed balls or you'd have a sweepstakes. Um, and my first thing also was going to American Express. Now, I was very late to the game because I couldn't have enough money to get an Amex card, but I would get these statements and I'd see they'd be giving away finally this membership rewards program and they were giving away like you get a free flight for X amount of points. I'm like, points for a flight? How about points for signed baseball, right? right. And that yep. was a moment of time where I convinced American Express to redeem points to signed items. And one of the first items I did was a Muhammad Ali pair of gloves and a uh, Phil Rizzuto baseball. And we were burning hundreds of thousands of points. My wife was like, no one's ever doing that. I'm like, really? I said, people want what they can't get. And at that time, that was a really cool item to get. And that's when I knew that there was a real hunger and interest. If I could prove to them that what I was selling them was authentic and it was really well done. So I always put a lot of love into my brand. And obviously my name, now with collectible exchange, I'm not with Steiner, but my name always carries over. People know that what I'm going to do is going to be real. It's going to be creative. It's going to be a little bit different. And, and, and the authentication that goes along with my name is everything I've built over the years. That's the brand. But in the early days, when the Steiner brand uh, meant a lot to you and your wife, but not a lot to the world, uh, how did you fend off the forerunners of the ProServes, the CAAs, the IMGs, who figured it might be a good idea, but probably wanted to take you out, buy you out, then take you out. No, not, not really. I collaborated with them. I was more of a collaborator. I worked with those big Good guys, you. you know, figured out how to put an extension on to what they were doing. Remember what I was doing. And, you know, when you go around, I mean, most people, they want, they, 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 they love the glory, but they don't want to deal with the story. And, you know, this yeah. was work. There was no shortcut. You didn't just all of a sudden throw your name in an ad. You got a hundred grand. This was a lot of work. So they, 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 a lot of those big companies, the CAAs and the IMGs, enjoyed working with me because I was doing the right thing. It took away a problem that they had, and the problem they had was that there was a lot of fake stuff out there. Yeah, I had a really bona fide process that really made sense. And when I started doing the team deals, that really took it even further because I was coming up with more products, more ideas for the players to sign. It was in an organized way. And most importantly, they could trust me with their players because I was spending an enormous amount of time with them, knowing that I wasn't going to steal them and try to represent them. So representing the player wasn't something that crossed my mind. Yeah. And because I didn't do that, 
it enabled me to build a bigger trust with a lot of agents, knowing that I wasn't in to try to steal what was important then, which was the agent part. How hard was it to overcome the presumption that the industry itself is poisonous, toxic, tainted, uh, not for the faint of heart, uh, you know, kind of a BS industry. And here you are guaranteeing authenticity. How hard was it for you to do that? Really hard. I mean, I can't tell you. I mean, that door hit my butt on the way out. I can't tell you the rejections, uh, even at home and even friends, nobody understood what I was doing. Um, I go home, my wife's like, we're sending our kids to college. You got to have a player's <laughs> line of baseball. And, and it was really hard. People get their arms around it. And then it's just, a, it, it kind of boggles me even to this day. I just got so focused on what I felt, you know, the business could be, even though it was such a, was kind of the business was just a hobby and it was a wreck at that it wasn't even a good hobby because there's so much fake stuff and you know people just doing all kinds of crazy stuff all over but i think for me the the the, the you know the real change of order was when i teamed up with you know derek jeter and you right. anning muhammad ali teamed up with the yankees notre dame alabama i mean those were very big partnerships I feel like people don't really understand the value of the P word and that's partnerships. So I was extremely careful about who I partnered up with, who I was connected to, because I knew that would the only way I could convince people that I was real and I was doing the right thing by who I'd be connected to. And I was lucky because Mickey Mantle was a big fan of mine and he did a lot of stuff with me early on along with Rizzuto, Ferra and Ford. That helped me get the ball rolling too. Well, I'm name dropping. I, I mean, name no, dropping. no, but you're you're, you're name dropping. You're one of the only people in this industry that can name drop and really get away with it because it's not BS. So speaking of mantle, the the, the card just sold for twelve point six million. We just saw that uh, the Maradona Maradona hands of God nine point three, the Honus Wagner, which used to be the standard seven million, uh, the Ali Rumble in the Jungle for six point two. Um, collectibles under the right circumstances are still worth a hell of a lot of money, right? They are. And, and it's, it's now, it's now like when I would mention collectibles or an auction, people would start shivering. I think now people are a lot more comfortable with the category. They're more comfortable with auctions. They understand the proprietary aspect. I think the trading card part of this is also a little bit of a train wreck right now. Uh, There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of cards out there. It's very difficult for the mainstream trading card to have a lot of validity and i tell people to be really careful about investing a lot of money in mainstream cards you think could be one day worth a lot of money there are some vintage vintage old old cards that will always be worth a lot of money you mentioned a few of them right there and there are a few others those cards will maintain value we know they're limited and they're very hard to get in good condition i worry about the modern day card business the way it's expanded We've already been through a phase of this debacle in the early 90s where people just bought crazy amounts of cards, pallets of cards, and they come to me now and they're worthless. Because, you know, my new company, people come to me with their stuff and I help them sell it. We have a true exchange. It's a marketplace. And I worry because people come to me with all these cards in the early 90s, which was the first big phase of like, wow, these cards are worth a lot. And they're almost worth nothing. And I feel like these last few years, the card companies completely overprinted there's a lot of cards out there that look like they're worth a lot but they're not and then there's a lot of money you have to put into to get these cards evaluated graded and then hopefully sold so the business is very complicated i wouldn't if anybody listening out there jumping into the card business right now if you don't really know what you're doing you kind of be careful 
because it's it's not a solid direction. I've never gone and told people to buy my stuff, hoping they're going to get rich one day on it. A lot of the stuff that I've created over the years has done extremely well. There's some stuff that hasn't done, you know, it is what it is. You should buy the stuff because you love it and it's fun. And then hopefully some of it goes up and some of it maintains good value. Yeah. How about this for us old guys? I assume now you have to be a resident expert on NFTs and digital collectibles because that's the next step. So I'm talking to a lot of people who think this card stuff's taking up space. It's wonderful to turn it all into digital stuff. And I said, you know, the sun is rising in the West. We're on a different planet. What's going on? What's going on? Well, it's early. You know, okay. it's early. So, um, you know, there's still a lot of cleaning up. And there's a lot of people that threw a lot of crap against the wall because, you know, a lot of people just love the hype. I'm surprised that some of the people that got into this and some of the crap that they threw against the wall and hopefully people didn't get scammed and schemed. Right. I do think it's going to be good for the collectible business when you get to an NFT and you do a one of one. So I, I love the idea yeah. of having this incredible collectible and it's an NFT. So now we can track it. You can make money after it sells because you're the original person who had it. I like that. I think that, you know, if you have a given example, like it was Paul O'Neill Day last week and there's no more tickets. I, you know, I could see doing an NFT for yeah. $25. That's really cool, very digitally creative. And that goes in my wallet because it was a big Paul O'Neill Day. And then the original art from that ticket gets sold in an auction and that's the NFT. I like that. I, I you know, I think the, the, the I think the, the answer to the NFT question is going to be, yes, there's a digital experience. There's something that can be done there if it's done with good quality. But the real money is going to happen with the physical and probably happening through an auction or a specific price. And yeah. I think for high-end collectibles, that's a good play because we know high-end collectibles gets passed down, passed down. Imagine if Babe Ruth, all those balls he signed mm. back then, knowing he was the Bambino, or were NFTs, he'd be, his family would still be making money on the sale of those balls. You can tell Brandon's got some really interesting perspectives on the whole aspect of the sports world. How about the Sports Tech Minute? Top Golf expanding to the first Massachusetts location, a three-level venue projected to open in late 2023. Plans to expand to 81 locations has broken ground on its latest facility in Greater Boston, Canton, Mass., roughly 20 miles southwest, its first foray into the state. The facility will have 90 separate hitting bays, each contain heaters, Fans for Top Golf's standard Top Tracer technology, tracking ball speed, distance, and powers gamification by many. And the bottom line of all of this is they will continue to move forward as they look as at one of the uh, opportunities to focus on golf, but from an entertainment perspective, which is probably really important when you think of the average golfer as being a very serious person who is attempting to improve his game, there is room for that. But there's also room for somebody who's able to play AR golf version of Angry Birds or a new digital spinoff called Shanksters, Shank Stars, where mythical characters such as a T-Rex skeleton play metaverse-style courses that have an unorthodox hazard. The Callaway-owned company currently has 70 sites up and operating with others soon in business locations such as San Diego. Marquee facilities in the U.S. are its four-floor, 120-bay venue just outside Vegas. Tenth hole at the West L.A. location includes the same ball-tracking technology 
used during PGA Tour broadcasts can be downloaded to golfers' smartphones through a QR code at the course. Top Golf first trialed in Boston during the Top Golf Live Stadium Tour. Fenway was converted into a temporary course. Good for them. That's your Sports Tech Minute. Now, your Sports Gaming Minute. And the gaming and gambling from this perspective, a little bit different. The Breeders' Cup, the World Championships concluded this last weekend. Nine grade one races, the Breeders' Cup Classic as the last. Event takes place at Keeneland in Lexington, Kentucky. Several accomplished thoroughbreds, a long list of the sport's biggest names among trainers and jockeys. At least a million bucks for every race, one of the biggest days in American racing, arguably the biggest horse race in the world. Flightline stood out to take home the top prize of $6 million. Life is good, and Flightline built a massive early gap ahead of the rest of the field, creating a two-horse race at the final turn. Bought for a million and 2.5% of the horse up for sale at Keeneland this week. Lucky for the winning bidder, he can get the 2.5% for a million. Even in a field of accomplished thoroughbreds, Flightline remained undefeated and showed why there was such a high expectation for a talented horse. Horse? And how about gambling? Gambling may be on the way back where the two big sports in the 50s were horse racing and boxing. See what happens from this perspective. And then, finally, the good sports. Five, in the era of philanthropy, we understand how important that is. Take a look at some of the issues. The Nets want Kyrie Irving to verbally apologize, complete sensitivity training, meet with local Jewish leaders before he's allowed to return. The league told Yahoo Sports he was unaware of the depth of what Irving was asked to fulfill by the team. That's been done. Obviously, the commitment has been made, and the story's not over, most probably. British popular rapper Stormzy launches Murky FC to fight racial equality in football. Campaign's launch also comes after the Football Association's second annual report on its diversity code, showing English clubs falling short in six out of eight of the pledged targets. California sports betting critical to the future of the entire industry, says many people. Although we'll probably know the results after I tape this, polls say it's likely to fail. Mets' Edwin Diaz agree to a $102 million uh, deal. As the offseason begins, there are certainly philanthropic commitments in that as well. Finally, Justin Turner wins MLB's Roberto Clemente Award for Philanthropy and his involvement in the community. UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital, the 14,000 bicycles to children distributed by Turner and his wife, all getting videos to children around the country, serving as honorary hosts for CHLA's Walk and Play LA event. Certainly Justin Turner worthy, and it's a great way to end the podcast this week. We always end on philanthropy. This is special. I'd like to thank Brandon Steiner for his usual uh, passion for the industry. I'd like to thank Nick Nielsen for helping us put this together today. I'd like to thank the rest of the staff for getting it out on time. I'd like to thank you for listening and watching. Join us next week when we go inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. In another context, I'm Rick Caro, the sports professor. Speak with you soon. <music>